today with Harry. Harry and I actually shared a class together last semester with Professor Bergsma, and we were just talking about this before we started recording, but I have no really concept at all of uh, Deleuze and Guitar, and st I'm still saying the name wrong. Deleuze and Guitar. <laughs> Deleuze yeah. and guitar. Yeah. It's terrible. Uh, but Harry's actually teaching a class on Deleuze and Guitar this semester, um, Schizophrenia and Capitalism, correct? Or, yeah. or Capitalism and Schizophrenia. Might rather, be inverting but, yeah. that. but can you please tell me a little bit about that and your involvement in students, uh, teaching students more generally? Yeah, of course. Um, so the class this semester, uh, Capitalism and Schizophrenia, uh, basically I was exposed to Deleuze for the first time uh, last fall 2020 um, in Professor Bergsma's class. And I just really found the ideas super fascinating. Um, I sort of felt like I was at a point in my life where I needed to like adopt a new philosophical system. I was sort of feeling tired of you know the way I had been conceiving of the world, and sort of just like looking for something new, a new avenue for thought. Um, and so Deleuze's work just like really spoke to me, um, and it seemed like it was just such a rabbit hole that I could get, dive down into and sort of explore all these new concepts. Um, and so even though we didn't cover the capitalism and schizophrenia books in that course. Um, I had just like found them like through my own, you know, searches on Deleuze, and I started to dive into them. Um, and I thought it offered a really fresh way for like conceiving politics in the modern age that's so just like saturated by everything's about identity. It's all identity politics, you know. You're either a Republican or a Democrat, and you either support this or that. And it's so, like, it lacks any sort of depth, I feel like. It lacks nuance. Um, it's just very suffocating. And I think what we've seen um, in politics recently is that it doesn't really matter what parties in control. Um, ultimately, change never really happens. It's sort of just this constant, like, maintenance of the status quo. Um, and what really inspired me about Deleuze and Guattari's work is that they offer sort of a path out of that a path towards like a truly like radical politics, a path that isn't, you know, stuck in any sort of like identity category, but something that really just eclipses all of that and teaches us how to do politics beyond, you know, the sort of ideology that's been set up for us. Um, and so that's where I really got, you know, the desire to teach this course. Um, I feel like now more than ever, this is like a message that people need to hear. Um, and obviously, you know, they're very difficult books, and by teaching this class, I sort of just want to introduce people to them and sort of just let them go off on their own journey of exploring them and, you know, figuring it out. And, you know, if it's something that speaks to them, maybe they'll continue to dive into it. I mean, they're really books that you could spend the rest of your life trying to figure out, right. which is part of the fun in them. Um, so this is week three. I've only taught two classes so far because we didn't have school on Martin Luther King Day. Um, so it's been going really well. Um, I think the students are really enjoying it, um, picking up on all of the different, you know, nuances of Deleuze's thought as much as I can, you know, cover in 50 minutes <laughs> once a week. Right, right, um, that's tough. But, so yeah, it's been surprisingly going really well, honestly. I was actually quite nervous about teaching this class just because I sort of had that, like, moment where I was just, like, sitting there and I was like, oh, like, this is like tough, like this is like really <laughs> difficult, difficult material. And I'm just like this like undergrad who's like 22 years old and like I'm not f like really formally trained in this. Right. And so like diving into this book and like teaching it to other people like really just seemed like something that might be a little bit like above my level, but honestly, um, it's proving to be just quite all right. So I'm really thankful for that. No, that's um, right. 
Yeah, but then students teaching students more generally. Sorry, I just feel like I'm like... No, no, you're good. You're good. Actually, I want to speak a little bit on that. I mean, uh, the transition between being a student and being a teacher. Mm. I mean, I feel like for me, at least, I can certainly understand a concept. At least I would feel that I understood it very well. But I think that there's a huge disconnect when it comes to understanding something and then having someone else understanding, helping someone else understand. I don't think you can lead them all the way. You kind of have to let them do their own thing. Just as how when you were introduced to Deleuze and Guattari, you kind of did your own independent uh, study. Mm. So what do you think is that, 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 that gap and how are you exploring that gap between being a student and being a teacher um, in your experience so far in these two sessions that you've had? Yeah, um, that's a great question, honestly. Yeah, I think something that I was talking about with my faculty advisor is like, Sure, like you might understand something, but you don't really understand something until you teach it to someone else. Uh -huh. um, and that's sort of then just like how I'm trying to bridge that gap is sort of like, you know, hone my own understanding to such a point where I can like share it with someone else and they'll be able to pick up on it. Um, it is weird serving in both the roles of like teacher and student. Um, because, you know, like I got an email in my inbox yesterday that was like, hi, Professor Brennan. <laughs> And I was like, I'm not a professor, like, I am, I'm a student, like... It must feel really good, though. No, it does, it does feel good. <laughs> but it's just so funny, like, taking on, like, these different roles. Um, and I think, honestly, like, the cool thing about it, though, um, is, like, as, like, being a student, like, I know how I learn, and I know, like, how, you know, what professors have been the most impactful on me, and, you know, what sort of, you know, skills and tools have helped me learn. Um, and so I've been able to take that and sort of apply it to my own teaching right. um, and I think especially with philosophy um, when there's something that's like a new concept something you don't really know I think it can be really beneficial to just have someone uh, like sit and like spell it out for you right like right. sometimes you just need like a lecture like you need someone like okay like I've analyzed this this is my take on it and so like by me giving you my take you can like take what I've said and then read the text and sort of draw your own conclusions about it, but you have a basic framework to like guide you through it, um, which right. I think is really essential, especially with you know books that are as challenging as these. Right, and that's the thing with philosophy. I feel like um, certain people they they talk to me about because I tell them I'm a major in philosophy, and mm -hmm. they're like, "Why can't you just read the books yourself?" And then I tell them, I think really the point of studying philosophy is like the class that we had with Professor Bergsma is this discussion, this open dialogue where mm. we each discuss our different views of the same exact text. Because believe it or not, it's one text, but people come out with all different sorts of interpretations. Yeah, and I think absolutely. that's the beauty of that text because I think a really well done text allows for a very high number of interpretations, mm. right? Because it's well suited to many different ways of life, many different uh, past experiences and ways of thinking. Uh, but I want to go back to something earlier that you were talking about, and you were saying um, with Deleuze and Guattari, they gave you a different way to see the world, almost a different philosophy to um, inherit. Mm. Um, I, I think about philosophy the same way, where I take a class and I sort of find a certain philosopher that I'm interested in or a certain way of thinking, and I actually adopt it as my own. What can you say anything about like this sort of like, you know, like playing with ideas and playing with ideas in this intimate sense where it becomes part of your person, your personality, the way you think about the world, the way you see the world? Because I feel like a lot of people keep um, their learning and, and maybe learning is very broad, but philosophical learning at, at a little bit of a distance. You know, this is what they think. You know, this is what this person thinks. Yeah. But what, what do you think is the value of really living that out in, in, in that way? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is actually something that I've been thinking with a lot lately and just sort of dealing with um, because 
I feel like when you get really into a thinker, when you get really into a certain type of philosophy, like there really is a risk of it sort of consuming you, right? Um, I think it's very easy to fall into a void almost and sort of just become so obsessed with this. I mean, because for like other disciplines, you know, obviously there's applications to day-to-day -day life for every discipline. But with something like philosophy, you know, I always tell people like the thing that sucks about, you know, doing philosophy is that there's no such thing as a work-life balance, right? Oh, yeah. Because if you're really committed to philosophy, if you're really committed to understanding these ideas, and if you're really committed to not just understanding them, but using them to sort of, you know, like dictate how you're going to live your life and, you know, the way you're going to act in the world and what you consider to be your position within the world, um, you have to internalize it, right? right. Um, and obviously there's a million different approaches to that. There's not a right or wrong one, I don't believe. Um, I think it's all just a matter of perspective at the end of the day. Um, but I really think the value in being intimately in touch with concepts, with ideas, with a philosophical you know, mode of thought right. is that it really opens you up to stepping outside of whatever has been set as like normal for how you're supposed to live your life, right? At least for me, um, you know, there's plenty of people that just like go through the motions and don't really ever think about any of the things that they're doing. And like, that's completely fine. Like, you know, I'm not going to say like, I don't really, I'm not like big on like, the, oh, like if you aren't examining your life, like you're like a bad person or something, right? right? Like I think everyone's just sort of on their own path. But I think the value in choosing to walk the path of the philosopher, and that sounds like an extremely pretentious <laughs> sentence, but I really don't mean for it to sound pretentious at all. I think the value is that it really forces you to get deeply in touch with things that most people would consider mundane. Right. Um, just sort of like, you know, something I think about a lot is just like the, you know, sort of structures that allow for me to have like everyday experiences, right? Like how am I able to, you know, recall memories and go about doing tasks and have like, you know, the moment of consistency where I'm able to, you know, recognize myself as a complete entity and recognize myself as someone who does these certain things and has this certain identity. Um, and like always thinking like that can be tough, quite frankly, but it's also really rewarding because it's just sort of allowed me to really, you know, get in touch with who I am, but also get in touch with the world around me. And I'd always like going out into the world with a very, you know, critical eye and always I like to just be, you know, paying attention to what's happening around me and being open to the world in that sort of way. And I think that's really what the value of, you know, philosophy is. Yeah, no, I, I really agree with everything that you said. And it's, it's, you know, it is tough. Like you were talking about, uh, there definitely are certain drawbacks, certain repercussions to living a life in that way. I think, um, your mental health is definitely affected to a slight degree or to a significant degree yeah, at significant times because, degree. You know, like these ideas really consume you and everywhere you go, you carry with you these ideas and you allow yourself to not only engage in tasks, but think about yourself while you're engaging in tasks and sort of take a third, a third, um, um, like a third person perspective, third person almost, perspective yeah. thank you, of yourself. Mm -hmm. And you're, so you're living inside and outside of yourself almost all the time. So it's, yeah. it's quite tough, but I want to, I want to go, uh, like more into the students teaching students and you were saying just now that you feel as though you are a student and a professor or not a professor yeah. they, they think you're a professor uh, <laughs> at the same time right but you do want to come to a point where you want to be a professor yeah that's but correct. do you think you ever come to a point where you stop being a student 
No, absolutely not. Um, right. I think we've really drawn that line and it's like super entrenched like in the sand in our society and I think that's kind of silly. Um, I'm really of the mindset that you can learn something from everyone, right? And those roles of like student and professor are very changeable um, and they can really switch like depending on, you know, who you're interacting with or what, you know, scenario you're exposed to. Um, so I really don't see a point in my life where I will consider myself to be like not a student. Um, there's always something new to learn and it's just sort of absurd like how much information there is. Um, <laughs> like I really think about that a lot too, just like there's so much out there, right? right? There really is like a nearly infinite amount of things that you could learn or pick up or acquire. And Lifetime isn't long enough. <laughs> yeah, lifetime absolutely isn't long enough. Um, so I think even when I'm like whatever, a professor by title or hopefully someday when I'm a professor by title if I get into grad school Not and get a job <laughs> on the other side of it. Um, but I don't think I'll ever, you know, consider myself out of the role of being a student. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think that's something that, you know, I really strive towards and something that I think everyone should uh, just always, you know, keeping their mind open for the potential to learn. Right, right. And so this for you, I mean, for people who, who, who don't know, like um, Harry's aspirations, as I mentioned earlier, to become a professor. And so for him, I think that like, or I should say for you, this is something that's really important. And maybe there's other students who are also involved in the students teaching uh, students program. But for you, I think this is exactly what you want to be doing in the future. Mm -hmm. So what how does it feel? Because I'm, I'm always curious because I'm, I'm trying to be a lawyer in the future and all the internships I'm looking for, you know, either to do with like shadowing a lawyer or, you know, doing work that's related to the legal field, but not exactly the work of a lawyer because mm -hmm. you need certain credentials to be there. But I do think that like there's something to be said about being able to sort of intern or be able to do exactly what you want to do in the future at the current moment. So how does that feel being in the classroom and teaching the students and being and, and, and having that responsibility to um, um, to educate uh, people about certain topics. Yeah, um, I think that having this teaching opportunity is really what sort of solidified, uh, you know, my belief that this is what I want to do with my life. Um, this is actually the third semester that I've taught. Um, so I first oh. taught in fall 2020 and then I've taught again fall 2021. And now I'm teaching spring 2022. Um, and so I think, you know, I had sort of had like the inkling that I wanted to be a professor um, very early on in my college career. When I started, I was a pre-med major. I thought I was going to be like a medical doctor. Oh, wow, that's very interesting. Um, so that ship sailed very quickly, <laughs> um, but it was ultimately replaced with something that feels a lot more like me and something that I think is going to be very fulfilling for me. Um, so being able to just be in this role of like being a student instructor as opposed to just being a student. Um, I think first off, it's given me a lot of insight into, you know, what it, yeah, what the responsibility of a professor is, right? Like I go into class and, you know, from a very pragmatic perspective, when I'm typing out my lecture notes, I'm like, okay, what do I want my students to leave here with today? Like mm -hmm. what is like the biggest takeaway that I need them to have? Because I know a lot of the details are going to get lost, you know, not everybody is going to remember every single thing I tell them. But there's definitely, I always try to have like a few key points that I really think are essential for students to take away mm -hmm. from that class. Um, and that's just sort of how I've structured all of my lectures, both for, you know, this class I'm teaching now and then also the class I taught uh, in the semesters prior, which was a Dutch culture class. Okay. Um, 
So it's been cool to have that insight into like the responsibility of an instructor and like what their role is and how they you know impact their students. Um, and I've definitely it's been really rewarding to you know I've had former students who I'm still in touch with that were like yeah like your class was like my favorite class that I took all semester. Um, you know I feel like I learned a lot, but it was still you know a comfortable environment. I didn't feel stressed. It's amazing. Um, and so those it's always really really nice to hear that because a lot of times. You know, you have the thought of, like, why am I doing any of this? Like, right. is it all for nothing, right? Does anyone even care? And it's those little moments that make it all worth it. Yeah, absolutely, right? absolutely. You were saying you, were, you taught, like, a, a class related to uh, the Dutch language, correct? Are you Dutch? Dutch. I'm not Dutch. Um, so I lived in the Netherlands for, like, a short period of time. My oh, parents okay. had moved there for work um, right when I graduated high school. So I spent two summers there and two winter breaks. Um, and I just, like, really, really loved it. Um, I immediately just felt very much at home there um, and so when my parents moved back from that job when my dad had finished his assignment over there I felt like I really needed a way to like stay in touch with the Netherlands um, right. because it had really become a part of me like it really felt like a huge part of my identity is like oh like I'm Harry and I live in the Netherlands right. and then having to give that up sucked like it was like really hard for me um, but by Proposing that course and teaching that course two times now I've taught that course um, It's given me an opportunity to you know stay in touch with that part of myself and even though I haven't been there in over two years um, I Still feel like I know it and I still feel like whenever I do finally make it back um, It'll still feel like home in a way, right? Right, right. I wanted to ask you how that influences your perspective. I mean, I've lived overseas for seven years prior to mm -hmm. coming uh, to Penn State. I lived in Abu Dhabi, and prior to that, I lived in Saudi Arabia. And mm -hmm. I'm originally Sudanese, so um, I, I think that that influences a lot of, of who I am as a person, mm -hmm. my, my identity. Um, so how would you say living in the Netherlands influences you now, either personally or professionally or both, or however you want to run with it? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in rural western Pennsylvania in a town called Dubois, um, which is like an hour away from here. There's actually a Penn State campus there. Okay. Um, and Dubois, it isn't so bad. Um, you know, there's, you know, lots of green space. It's a very, you know, natural place. There's, you know, woods and game lands and forests and lakes and things. And um, it's a very comfortable place to grow up, right? Like there's not a lot of issues going on. Um, and yet at the same time, it sort of really feels isolated from like a larger cultural narrative. Um, you know, a lot of places in Pennsylvania, just, you know, given the rise of globalization, um, a lot of the, you know, industry driven towns have just sort of been left behind. Right. Um, and Dubois is definitely a place that has that feeling. It sort of feels like the party's over almost. Mm, stuck in, a way. in the past. A little yeah. Bit. Um, and so, you know, whatever I had grown up there, um, I had like traveled as a kid, but never really for any extended period of time. Um, and so that was really my world, right? Like Dubois was my world until I was 18. And then three days after I graduated high school, I got on a plane and flew to the Netherlands, which was the first time I'd ever been abroad. So the first time I'd ever been abroad, uh, I was going abroad for three months, wow. um, which is a very strange <laughs> feeling because um, it's like, what if I get there and I hate it? Right. Um, so I got there and just like immediately, I mean, it really is a whole different world, right? Um, you know, the Netherlands, which a lot of people don't actually know this, but it has a huge impact on, you know, our culture. Um, there's a lot of, you know, famous art from the Netherlands. Uh, 
a lot of you know famous economic inventions came from the Netherlands. Um, a lot of the bad parts of our history have root in the Netherlands. You know, oh, sort of you know the birth of uh, capitalism, the birth <laughs> of colonialism, the birth of slavery. Like all the Dutch were really involved in all of that. Um, and so I think ultimately what living in the Netherlands uh, provided for me was a sense that there is a world out there that's much, much bigger than I originally thought. You know, whenever you live somewhere your whole life, you like you know that there's a world, right? You know that there's a much larger uh, world, I guess, like a much larger globe um, full of people with different cultures and different languages. and um, But you don't really fully internalize that until you actually go and experience it. Right. Um, it sort of just remains as a concept until you're there, right? Until you're in it. Right. Um, and even going to the Netherlands, which has like an extremely similar culture to the U.S. in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's like a Western affluent country. Um, it still just felt like something completely new had opened up to me. Yeah. Um, and I just remember like walking the streets of Amsterdam and, you know, looking at the canals and everything's just so beautiful and it feels very, you know, comforting. It feels, it immediately just, I just felt like I could be myself there. Um, There's something really freeing about being somewhere 4,000 miles away where not a single person knows your name. Um, I think we, whenever we're in our little circles in our own worlds, we sort of internalize all of these like social codes and rules that we think we have to follow and you have to act a certain way you you're you so you do these certain things and you say these certain things and you act this certain way but going there it sort of made me realize like I can completely reinvent myself like I don't have to be anyone um, and no one here is going to judge me no matter what I do yeah um, so it was really cool to have that opportunity and I think I would absolutely not be where I am today without it I really think that might be the most like cataclysmic event of my life, um, right. and so I'm very grateful for that. That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, like I think I think of my life, and I think like almost like it's very different, almost um, like in in a certain sense because I, you know I never stayed in one place my entire life for longer than like was it like three years mm-hmm. until I moved to to Abu Dhabi, and my first time going back to Abu Dhabi was the time I realized that that was the place that I called home mm-hmm. because I guess my whole life was always just moving around like whether internally in the States or, or outside that I never got to really be in one place and feel like this was home. Home was just the place that me and my parents and my, my siblings lived in. You yeah, know? absolutely. And and I guess like I'm starting to realize the, the, the importance and the significance of living in one place for a long time. I think you get to develop sort of an intimate relationship with the place itself and see old things anew again. Mm. I know that's a concept you're very familiar with. But I I think that that's something that I was lacking throughout my life. But my first time visiting Abu Dhabi is is, is when I got to experience that. Um, But I also do see the enormous amount of uh, privilege and insight that it grants you to be able to live overseas. It Mm. really allows you to open up your worldview, as you've said. Um, so to go back into it, so you are you find yourself now the co-director of students teaching students, waiting for your graduate to hear back from graduate schools and whatnot. 
What's, what's, what's going through your mind? What's your primary concern right now? What are you thinking about on a day-to-day? What's gripping you? Is it these, the, <laughs> the letters that you're going to receive from the graduate schools, trying to plan for your next class, the coursework you haven't finished? What's, what's going on with you? Hmm. That's, that's <laughs> an interesting question. Um, I think, honestly, it's really a conglomeration of all of those things, right? Um, I'm very much the type of person that tries to live my life day by day. I don't really like to be too far out into the future. Um, just because there's not really much you can do about that right now. It's true. Um, but yeah, I would say, I mean, waiting to hear back from grad school is definitely like weighing on my mind um, just because it's like a super competitive year for applications. A lot of schools didn't accept new graduate students um, last year because of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. So there's like double the number of people applying. Um, and quite frankly, I don't have a plan B. Like mm-hmm. my plan for life is to be a philosophy professor. And, you know, if I don't get into a PhD program, I don't really know where that leaves me, to be quite honest. So I'd say that's probably one of my biggest concerns that's on my mind right now. You know, now. I respect that, though. I respect when people don't have a plan B. Yeah. Because well, it means you, you double down on your plan A. Yeah. There's no way your plan A is not going to be executed. Because yeah. if it doesn't happen this way, it's going to go that way. You exactly, know? Like, yeah. Do you, do, you, do you share that sentiment? I would share that sentiment, yeah. I really, I mean, I never felt the need to make a plan B because, quite frankly, I don't see myself doing anything else. Like, you know, it's always like a lot of people... You're always told that you should have a plan B, right? Like you gotta, you gotta have your backup plan. Like sometimes things don't work out the way that you expect them to, and I mean that's partially true, right? Yeah. I mean there's definitely something to be said about that, but ultimately I think you know you're really passionate about something when you choose to yeah just dive headfirst into it without having a backup plan and just say like hey this is what I'm gonna do, right? Like there's no if ifs, ands, or buts about it, right? Like, it's just how it's going to be. Yeah, and I feel like I feel like a big part of why you're doing this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is because you truly do have a passion for education. Yeah. And I, I feel like, uh, I'm not sure if you see the same thing, but passion in education is getting lost. I'm not sure if it's just, if it's getting lost, if it's always been like mm-hmm. this, but I feel like students these days take classes because this class is easy to get an A on, or this class doesn't have much homework to do with. And I, I hear that almost all the time. And granted, there are students who pick classes that, that because of they're interested in certain classes, mm-hmm. and you and I are walking examples of those kind of people. But do you do you think that like your involvement in student teaching students is sort of tr- trying to counteract that and bring passion back to education, or am I am I reaching here? You, you just no, I think that's completely what it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, our whole sort of mission statement is that you know we empower students to design the courses they want to see at Penn State, right? Um, you know, I think there, it is kind of sad that education has just become something that people see as like, oh, I just need to get this piece of paper so I can get a job. And quite frankly, I think that's sort of a symptom of a larger cultural sickness um, that we are dealing with in the 21st century of, you know, we just sort of, we don't see anything past work. We don't really see anything outside of this, you know, social and economic apparatus that we've set up we sort of view everything as a means to an end right right um and i think there's like this podcast yeah yeah exactly um and so i think there's really something to be said about doing something just for the sake of doing it um and that's really what our courses are you know a lot of our courses they don't really count for degree requirements Um, i'm pretty sure the only course that's actually counted towards like gen ed requirements was the dutch class that i taught um all the other ones are one credit electives for the most part. 
Um, so these are courses that nobody needs to take, right? They're not required. Um, they're basically just an enrichment opportunity for students. Right. Um, and yet in all of our courses, we've had really, really good enrollment. Um, right. It's been really, you know, it makes me feel good to see that these courses are filling up and that people want to take them because that is essentially what's happening here. They're doing it just for the sake of doing it, right? They're learning for the sake of learning. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really what we've lost in today's society. Um, so yeah, it makes, me, it makes me very, very happy to see um, so many people being excited about what Students Teaching Students is doing because that's what we do. We help people learn for the sake of learning and we empower people to bring to life, you know, the courses that they think are important, what they think needs to be covered, you know, regardless of what, uh, you know, current curriculums uh, have in mind. Yeah, for sure. And for me, my, my thought when you say all this is that I want the person listening to this who's interested in doing what you're doing to know how to do so. So mm -hmm. for whoever's listening, what would be their first step? Say they're interested in students teaching students and they have a particular material um, in mind and uh, they want to start teaching a class, what are the steps that they can take to be in the position that you're in? Yeah, um, so I mean the first major thing um, is to find a faculty member who is going to be willing to sponsor your course. Um, before we even let students apply, we, have, uh, we make sure that they've already found a faculty member who's willing to be their faculty champion, we call them. Mm. Um, and that's typically someone who at least has like a similar interest or sort of knows a thing or two about what you want to teach about. Yeah. Obviously, sometimes you have such a niche topic that there's not even a faculty member that knows anything about it. But generally speaking, um, we haven't had a lot of issues with connecting students to faculty members who are willing to sponsor the course. Um, so essentially, on our website when we open our application there's like a page that has like all the info of like everything you need to know to build your own course and we have you know templates for emails for like reaching out to faculty members who you don't know who you'd like to sponsor your course and we have templates for creating your own syllabus and designing assignments and those sorts of things um, so there's a lot of work that just sort of goes into you know first off what am I going to teach and then secondly like how am I going to teach it mm -hmm. um, but something that we've been able to do now that we've um, been doing this for two years, I guess it has been now, spring 2022, we started in spring 2020, um, is we've really been able to sort of like streamline the process and we've seen like what works and what doesn't. So we've created a very comprehensive, you know, like application like launch page that sort of just gives everyone uh, all the tools that they need to create their own course. Um, and it's been really refreshing and inspiring to see some of the crazy things that people have come up with. Um, People have really taken this and just ran with it, and I think that's great. All right, yeah, I saw I saw on the on the homepage something about the courses range from anywhere uh, from Kanye West to preparing for your LSAT, something, yeah. or something along those yeah. lines. I thought that was very interesting. Definitely, yeah. Uh, but could you speak on um, like how this all happened? Like, how did students teaching students begin? Um, who were the people that were involved? What was the process of events that led to it really happening? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Students Teaching Students was founded by Josie Krieger and Michael Miller. Um, I actually think I took a class with, with Josie. I took um, uh, Ugar, uh, one, of, one of his classes. Uh, it was yeah. a class on... Um, was it modern philosophy? Philosophy of religion. It was actually oh. the first semester I was here. Okay, yeah, philosophy yeah. of religion, yeah. I think she told me she took that class, actually. Huh. Um, so it was founded by Josie Krieger and Michael Miller. Um, Josie has since 
uh, moved on from SCS. She's working on other things, um, okay. but she was one of the founders and Michael graduated last year. Wow. Um, and the other person who was on the team from the start was Amanda Mohammed, um, who is now also co-director with me uh, this year. Um, and so Michael was always just a very crafty individual and he, you know, sort of, this was his idea, right? So I, I have to give credit where it's due. He was the one who like really, him and Josie, they sat down and they were like, okay, let's do this. Uh -huh. um, and I think it was a very radical idea when it first started. You know, Penn State is like very resistant to Any change. Sort of change. <laughs> yeah, it's um, not like, quite frankly, it sort of seemed like a pipe dream that like students would ever be able to teach their own courses. But uh, Josie and Michael really found a way to make this happen. Um, and they launched their first like trial courses in the spring of 2020. Um, that's when I first heard about the program, and then I applied to teach in fall of 2021, or fall of 2020, all the years getting mixed up. Um, <laughs> it's natural. Yeah, so I just like found out about it. I didn't really know much about it, but then I saw like the general guides, like, okay, you just need a syllabus, and you need a faculty member, and I was like, cool, I'm like, let's do it. Let's see what happens. Um, yeah. I knew that I wanted to be a professor, so this was like a good way for me, like I said earlier, I think to sort of just like test the water. Um, but yeah, since since then, um, I ended up joining the exec board in spring of 2021, and then when Michael graduated in uh, last spring, uh, Amanda and I took over as co-directors, um, and we've sort of just been trying to continue, you know, the work that Michael and Josie started. Um, the goal long term for STS is that this would become something that like every single student would take a student-taught course by the time that they graduate. Oh. Um, and obviously that is going to take a lot of work and a lot of time. Um, and so we're just really focusing on doing what we can given you know the team we have right now, the resources we have right now, the connections we have right now. Um, this semester, I believe we're offering 12 student-led courses, which is the most we've ever had in a single semester. Congrats. Um, thank you, which has been, yeah, it's really great. Um, so far, we've offered 36 courses. Um, and there's been courses in liberal arts, in SMEAL. Uh, we had one approved in engineering, but unfortunately uh, the enrollment uh, wasn't high enough for it to continue, mm -hmm. uh, which was very sad. That was like the first time that it ever happened to us. Interesting, um, with engineering, huh? Yeah, but I mean, overall it's been really, really cool to see this program come to life. And like, you know, now I think we've got enough word out, like we don't even have to do like press releases anymore. Like they just write stories about us. Like I'd put like on, the first day of the semester, I just like put up an Instagram post and like updated the website and said, hey, our application for fall 2022 applicants is open. And Onward State had a story up about it in like two days. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even have to tell them. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been really cool uh, watching this sort of just, you know, turn from an idea that two people had sitting in this library actually to, you know, this program that's really known all across the university. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really amazing. Like when people just come together and have ideas, but don't just let them go and fully commit to them. I think that that's part of what I what I meant to capture when I was talking about not having a plan B. You know, like there's something that you really believe in, and you go and you chase it with everything that you got. Um, I don't know. I, I think that we've we've sort of touched on everything. Uh, everything but is, there, everything, is there anything yeah. you'd, you'd want to add to to the sort of discussion um, in regards to 
your personal philosophy, uh, students teaching students, your involvement as co-director, uh, the future, anything that you'd like to tell our listeners. I don't know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit you here, are but <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I don't know. I feel like whatever I say is going to sound really corny. Right <laughs> like maybe I just like won't say anything. Um, I guess all in all, like, you know, I'm sort of standing here at the end of my time at Penn State, um, which sort of just feels like a very strange thing to be happening because mm-hmm. COVID and I feel like I sort of lost two years and it's like I was just a freshman and now I'm already a senior in my last semester. Um, and with that being said, I feel like through my studies here, through getting involved with students, teaching students, I've really realized how many opportunities there are here. Um, and that's something, you know, before I came to Penn State, like I did not want to come here, quite oh, frankly. Yeah. This is my last choice. Um, and since being here, I mean, I really can't imagine, like, if I went somewhere else, um, you know, it just happens that Penn State has one of the best continental philosophy programs in the world. Um, and what do I want to study? I want to study continental philosophy. Um, so I just, like, completely unknowingly, like, walked into a place that perhaps prepared me the best anywhere could for continued study in this field. Um, so that's just been, like, a huge blessing that I could have never seen coming, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, And then, yeah, just having the ability to get so much teaching experience before grad school um, has just been insane, Um, something that I probably would not have had if I had gone elsewhere. Um, So I'm really grateful for my time here. I think it's been really, really beneficial and has really shaped me into the person I am. Um, And it's so funny to think back to like little 18 year old me, like thinking I didn't want to come here and it just goes to show like how little I knew about myself and the world and how much has changed since I got here. Um, so it's been great. Well, that's like the least corny answer you could have given. So. Great. Perfect. <laughs> I'm happy to hear it. Thank you so much for coming on, Harrison. Yeah, of course. Really Thank you for having me. me.